Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage Podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director of Mitchell Institute. Here on Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. If you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. So to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and follow our show and give us a like and leave a comment so we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Now this week, we're gonna continue to focus on spectrum warfare. Now, as we discussed last week with Colonel Joshua Kozlov at the 350th wing, this technology, the associated conops and the tactics are crucial for success in modern warfare. We've taken way too much risk in this area since the end of the Cold War and is beyond time for us to up our game and, and maintain our spectrum warfare edge. Air Force leaders, they know this, and that's why they stood up the 350th wing a few years ago to build a team specifically tasked with championing and implementing solutions. And, you know, they highlight this mission area a lot in public comments. I mean, as we mentioned last week, the Air Force Chief of Staff, General Brown, he specifically called this out in congressional testimony when he said that we've lost some muscle memory here. So we're huge fans of where the Air Force is going on this, but that's only half the equation. We also need industry talent who can innovate and produce the tools required to empower this mission. I mean, this is seriously complex stuff. It's not a pickup game, and it's not something we can take for granted. This is all about running a marathon here, not a sprint. And the talent required to help meet these requirements, it takes years, even decades to cultivate. And the same holds true for the facilities and tools needed for production. And so that's the focus of today's episode, learning about the industry side of the equation that's required for the U.S. to maintain its spectrum warfare advantage. To help us with that conversation is Josh Nidzwicki, Vice President and General Manager of Electronic Combat Solutions at BAE. Josh, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate uh, the invite onto your podcast. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have experts like you on. You know, I tried to walk people through some of the context in the introduction, but I'd like to get your take on things. I mean, how would you define the spectrum warfare challenge facing our warfighters today? And why does it matter that we maintain a competitive edge here? Yeah, so this is a very important dimension to having a strong warfighting posture for the U.S., it really is all, all comes down to speed in the battle space, speed in our ability to close the kill chain faster than our adversary. And when you think about the near peer threat environment, uh, that's the pacing threat right now, that adversary, if we were to ever engage, is likely to be playing a home game. And that means they have the ability to leverage a massive, dense, networked, integrated air defense system that includes fixed ground and mobile ground systems, airborne and spaced platforms, all of which are designed to network and integrate together to provide a seamless understanding of the battle space to detect ID, track and engage us. And our ability to do that better and faster than them is paramount. And our ability to disrupt and deny their eyes and ears is also paramount to winning in that future fight. So. I mean, how does this compare to past generations? B-52s, B-1s, F-15s, F-4s, they were all designed with elements of electronic warfare gear back in the Cold War. And what's different now? And really, what's the difference between electronic warfare from a historic lens and where we are now with what's called spectrum warfare? Because obviously, I've, I've kind of noticed a vernacular change with how the service refers to it. So does that signify something more? 
Yeah, so great question. You know, when you go back and look at the Cold War, the pace of evolutionary change in the adversary's capability was measured in years, even decades. A lot of that in the electronic warfare space was driven by the fact that electronics and all of these systems like radars were analog-based. So those designs were fixed, built, and deployed. And we as a nation would gather intelligence on what those systems were doing, how they'd operate, and then we'd go back and spend months and years in labs trying to figure out how to counter those threat capabilities. And then once we built those electronic warfare techniques and solutions, we'd apply them and they'd have longevity. And then the adversary would then understand what we're doing and that tit for tat game would keep going, but it would happen on the course of years. Today, the challenge we have is, especially with the boom in the commercial telecom industry, there's an immense amount of investment in wireless technology. Everything is digital. Everything is software reprogrammable. And so now the threat can change, not just you know month to month, day to day, but pulse to pulse in a radar example. And so our ability to address that much more agile, complex electromagnetic environment is what really differentiates the electronic warfare of the past now, it's, it's really interesting, that whole notion of time. I mean, it's got to make it very, very difficult when we think about the training and, and the preparation and really just how you even man a unit to continually upgrade the systems and all that incredible challenge. Yes, I agree. So, you know, pulling a bit more on the historic threat, back in Desert Storm, we had F-117s, and, and that harnessed stealth, obviously, with the signature and all that. We had EF-111s and EA-6Bs that were dedicated wholly to electronic warfare. You had ISR aircraft like the U-2 specifically, you know, gathering information. And then we had kinetic mission types like the F-15, the B-52. And that's a really federated force. Now we're seeing an integrated blend. I mean, you got the F-35, F-22, or eventually the B-21. And that relies on a combined set of those capabilities all within a given airframe. So, you know, stealth, EW, information gathering, processing, plus the ability to, to close kill chains. And they're also highly connected and, and collaborative amongst themselves. And can you talk to us why this integrated approach is essential? I mean, I'd argue we need to stop talking about certain aspects of this technology um, versus others instead of recognizing that it takes a team of systems. And to that point, it's time to get over, stop debating stealth versus no stealth. And, and I think we're moving past that. And it's really, we need these things as a baseline. They need to be integrated, brought together as a team, as a, a kind of a, a multi-purpose tool going forward. Am I accurate how I'm thinking about that? Yeah, I think you're spot on. And it's becoming, the future fight is becoming less and less about, you know, the specific platform. To your point, we would, we would develop and invest in a platform for a specific mission capability, whether that is ISR or Strike or air combat, nowadays, all of those platforms have to interact with each other. And spectrum warfare is essential to enabling us to do that. Even in today's systems, you've got a focus in the industry and in the Department of Defense around, I'll call it a one versus many fight, where even in EW, every platform is assumed to be alone and has to handle every possible threat that it faces in the environment. And when you look at the complexity of the threat dynamics, I think the next evolution of that is really 
driving an increased focus on collaborative networked capability across multiple platforms. And that includes manned and manned collaboration, as well as man versus unmanned collaboration to really bring it to a many versus many fight. It's interesting in in hearing you talk and all, I kind of think back to in in building in your last answer, an earlier era where you kind of had the wall phone hardwired, you know, it would sit there for years, never really change. You had a Walkman to listen to music and, you know, physical computer to do stuff. Now it's all on a smartphone. You're getting seamless software upgrades. It's wirelessly connected anywhere. And it's absolutely revolutionized how we engage. Yet if you lose the connectivity, there you are. You're out of luck. And, and in many ways, that's how I'm picturing this battle space as you're explaining it, where that's why it's so important to be on that spectrum advantage edge, because that is what the glue that, that holds it all together. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, the fact that we're taking advantage of the spectrum to interconnect all these different sensors, each sensor in the battle space has a different vantage point, has a different opportunity to see, detect, and track the target and gather information and sharing all that to provide a seamless battle picture is huge. And if you lose that connectivity and you don't have that, then it's all for naught. And so I think there's a a major focus on maintaining that spectrum advantage so that you can keep those links up. And so there's a huge focus now on robust communications. How do you build anti-jam resilient networks networks that have multiple paths to traverse between platforms and a battle space. And even beyond that, how do you build systems that are smart about what information needs to be transmitted when across the battle space and only transmit that necessary information so you don't leave yourself vulnerable when those links are done? Now, and and the last piece is key. I mean, when we started talking early concepts like Combat Cloud and all that, we would always say all information to to all actors and all that. It's like, no, we had it wrong. You'd be drowning in data. It's all about what do you need at a given time and place. No more, no less. Yeah. So let's talk about effects that we can deliver through the spectrum. I mean, in the past, I think we thought about EW largely as a defensive technique. And now, you know, hearing you discuss it, we can also secure offensive effects. And I think this is important because there are times when a bomb may not be the fastest, most accurate effector, you know, an action through the electronic or electromagnetic spectrum, it, it might be better, especially if we want it, the effect to be reversible or, or really nuanced in its application. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so 100% agree. And I think as BAE Systems, we are the mission systems lead for the Compass Call aircraft. And that's a great example of what you're just describing here. That's a platform that is designed specifically to go attack enemy command and control communications links and radar threats. And using tools like that in the battle space to disrupt and deny the adversary's ability to get a firing solution because you're degrading the, the link that was going to hand off a targeting coordinate to a, to a shooter is super important. And when you look at the future battle space, again, Compass Call is one platform, but how do you evolve to having even more platforms in the environment that can deliver different versions of those effects and multiply that capability more broadly? No, and that really brings to bear why we need enough numbers of these aircraft. I mean, you look at Compass Call and and how many are programmed. I mean, we're strong advocates of the notion that that's not enough. You need more. You just look at 
how rapidly that asset would get diluted across a region as big as the Pacific when it is such an important, powerful effector. And it's difficult because people can't get their head around it. I mean, you just kind of see an airplane sitting on the ramp. It's different than if you were to count bombers or fighters because it's, it's so much more of a conceptual set of results you're getting. And it's, that is difficult to explain sometimes. Yeah, I agree. So another concept in discussion these days is really the notion of spectrum freedom of maneuver. What mm-hmm. is it and why is that important? Yeah, so, so spectrum freedom maneuver is, is really all about the fact that now the spectrum, even on the blue only side, is extremely packed. You have a tremendous amount of commercial wireless communication signals in the environment. You have radar signals, you have a range of different sensors and deconflicting that just on the blue side is important to enable you to operate in the battle space. Bring that coupled against red, who's also trying to deny your use of the spectrum with things like jammers, you know, their versions of compass call, our ability to combat that is huge. Even when you look at things like GPS, global positioning systems, you need to be resilient to those types of spectrum effects. Those things give you that freedom of spectrum maneuver, which gives you the freedom of kinetic maneuver. If I have a GPS-guided munition and it's being jammed, it can't find the target. If I have a GPS-guided munition that has now got anti-jam technology built in and is resilient to that jammer, it can still get to the target. And so that, I think, is what I think about when we talk freedom of maneuver in the spectrum. No, that, that's fascinating stuff. And yeah, I mean, you just think about the number of systems we had a decade ago and then where we are now, it's just exponential growth. And obviously it's getting really crowded out there. Yeah. So building off that, I mean, spectrum warfare is also crucial to manifest joint all domain command and control and advanced battle management systems and, and just those encompassing visions. Can you walk us through your thoughts on that? I mean, is it even possible to close a modern kill chain against a pure adversary without spectrum warfare capabilities? Yeah, so certainly our opinion is closing the kill chain is highly enabled. How fast you can close that kill chain is all enabled by spectrum warfare capabilities. It's all a game, like we said earlier, of time. And Blue's ability to deny Red's ability to operate in that spectrum buys some of that time, time and space. And so, you know, when you think of a system like EPAWS, the Eagle Passive Active Warning System that we produce that goes on the F-15E models and EXs, those are fourth generation platforms, but it's that EW capability and that onboard jamming capability and that 360 degree situation awareness that will allow that platform to get a lot closer to the fight than it ever could without electronic warfare. And those things drive time and space. So those are some of the things I think about when I think about closing the kill chain and how spectrum warfare plays a major role in that. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So when you look at the Pacific region versus Europe, we're obviously dealing with two separate threats. And sure, look, Russia and China, they cooperate and they collaborate, but the systems are often different. And we swing aircraft between these theaters all the time. So how does this impact how you design spectrum warfare capabilities that can be flexible and effective in, in both regions? Yeah, so, so great question. I mean, this all comes down to where 
everybody in industry and the government's going, which is to have much more modular, scalable, open architecture systems. In the past, everything was done at the box level and everything was closed, proprietary, and federated. Really to combat the challenge that not only are the threats different in different theaters, but the threats in a given theater are changing rapidly. To beat that, you have to have software-defined open architecture systems. The other element of that is digital engineering and model-based engineering. Those are tools that are rapidly emerging and are huge enablers. They allow you to do things like model effects, validate them in a hardware-in-the-loop environment and in a flight test environment, And then once you've got that validated model, now in a simulation environment, you can do excursions and look at what if scenarios, what if the adversary were to change its capability here or here? How does that affect uh, my system performance and how might that drive my ability uh, to defeat it? And so a big focus for us is in that end. And it's not just software defined open architecture, it's also driving a more modular architecture. So for us, for example, on F-35, we have a modular architecture that's beyond just the card level, but it's at the sub-card level. And that's important because when you talk about technology advances to address the pacing threat, a lot of those advances are in processing capability. So things like field programmable gate arrays and how much processing you can put, just like your cell phone every two years that you replace you know, the processing horsepower doubles. We want to create an environment where I can rapidly replace those parts in order to allow me to more rapidly insert new technology, new capabilities, new algorithms that are all focused on that advanced threat. So to me, that's really the emphasis is software-defined open architecture systems that allow you to drive that adaptability. Well, so if I look at something like an F-35 or eventually a B-21, I really need to think about there are some physical hardware pieces, obviously, but it is the software that's the engine that makes that happen. And and that's something that could be adapted far more rapidly and dynamically and reprogrammed on demand. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. You know, this is an area we're putting a tremendous amount of focus across across BA systems, but the entire DOD, you know, just pulling on the compass call thread again, for for example, in the past, the prior versions of compass call were anytime we had a new capability, it was a roll on roll off box that was put on the platform and did one very specific thing. Nowadays, we have something called Saber, which is a software defined open architecture framework. And you've got, we have multiple third party vendors bringing in software. The reason that's important is because now I can deploy new capability automatically and almost instantaneously. So as the science and technology community advances in their understanding of the threat and developing new electronic warfare techniques, those techniques now can go from the lab into theater in a what we call a DevOps development operations environment much, much faster than before. Yeah, that's incredible stuff. And that brings up another question here. I mean, and it's the human dimension because we talk a lot about technology, but without trained professionals, and by that, I mean your workforce as well. It's not just those that are, you know, flying the mission or maintaining jets. You know, this enterprise just doesn't work. And we, we took a lot of risks in this area as we drew down EW in the 90s after the Cold War. So how do we grow a new bench of talent 
you know, we asked the same question at Colonel Kozlov last week, and I'm interested in your thoughts from an industry perspective. And I think you know, my guess is absorption and all of that is a huge challenge because this is such exquisite knowledge. And, and I would imagine a lot of it is art that the folks that are experienced have to train up the next set of, of talent. And, and there's only so much that you can flow through at a given time without really kind of melting down the system. And how do you guys look at this? Because when I hear you talking about this evolution from boxes to more agile software and all that, that is very, very staff intensive with very smart folks. Yeah. So I, I think that's, you hit it, the nail on the head. This is a huge challenge for all of industry. One that certainly from our perspective and my perspective here, we tackle head on, but it is not easy. And there's a couple dimensions to that problem that I think are worth thinking about. One dimension, which is interesting, is when we're developing an electronic warfare system, so just take EPOS or F-35, for example. F-35 started in the early 2000s. And so there's two dimensions. One is we have a group of very capable domain experts who really understand the threats, how the radars work, how they're laid down, the physics of electronic warfare, and how you employ different techniques. But as you build these systems that are taking more than two decades to field, you have folks that have worked a good part of their entire career at only one dimension of that problem. Maybe there's a systems requirements engineer who's been focused on system requirements development. They don't have to necessarily know how the physics and math work. And so one of the things that we look at at BAE Systems is how do, how do, I, how do I tackle that problem? right? I've got plenty of engineers that know how to build this kit and I can train engineers, microelectronics engineers, systems engineers, software and firmware engineers to build the systems we have and provide evolutionary solutions and upgrades, a, a next generation receiver that has wider bandwidth or higher sensitivity. Those are things that also take expertise, but don't require the same level of domain knowledge. So one of the things we do is leverage our research and development organization. So we have an entire business we call Fast Labs that is all focused on doing work with uh, organizations like DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Though that's where we hire all of our, you know, young undergrad, grad, and and doctorate folks out of school who have the latest appreciation of technology and are really fresh on the math, the physics, and science that have not changed, but they know the latest tools. And it's all about how do we create an environment where I can take that intellectual expertise and map it to that domain expertise I was talking about before. Those folks that have 30, 40 years of field test and flight test experience building electronic warfare techniques, beating some of the most advanced radars. And I want to get those R&D engineers focus and understanding what are the real mission problems. And so we spend a lot of time doing development and training of those new researchers and engineers with those subject matter experts to try to accelerate their exposure to the problem space. Because in today's fight, and if you listen to Secretary Kendall, you know, he talks a lot about engaging the the, the defense industrial base and the way I've seen the air force over the past couple of years operate under his leadership is a much more open environment. 
It's not coming to industry and saying, hey, I need a system that has this much bandwidth that handles these many simultaneous signals. And then we go build a system to that requirement spec. He's creating an environment that says, hey, the threat is evolving faster than we can build those requirements. We need industry to come in and help us understand the threat, understand the gaps, and help us solve them. And so that's driving uh, a much tighter coupling between the R&D and the technology community and these domain experts with decades of experience. That's exciting to hear you talk about that. And it's encouraging to see how you're evolving your model. So I don't know whether you, you can really go into this or if it's proprietary, but you know, what are the timelines you're talking about to get somebody like, you know, out of school and, and for them to kind of get through various thresholds of utility to you. I mean, on, on the combat air forces side of the equation, we always say, look for, for a fighter pilot to, to really get experienced in and become useful. You're talking many years, like five, you know, eight years to, to be valuable. And so in many ways, that's your strategic window surprise. Even if you recruit somebody today, you're talking multiple years before you could actually expand your, your combat capacity and capability. And so that's why it's so important that we invest sufficiently in predictable budgets and, and really anticipate demand and all of that, because this is not flipping a switch. I mean, we're seeing this play out in Ukraine right now where people all of a sudden want things instantly. And it's like, Hey, hold on now. I mean, we're, we got to run marathons here. You're not going to fix this through a sprint. It's not possible. How do you guys factor that as, as you look at your labor management? Yeah. So I, I think it is a huge challenge and it absolutely takes years. This is a level of domain knowledge and expertise that you can't just build by um, being in a classroom and taking some courses. You, you really have to live it. You have to design systems. You have to be out at some of the test ranges doing tests and actually seeing the capability you've developed, implemented, and operating. And that absolutely takes years. I, I can think of one individual in our organization right now. I would say he is absolutely probably the most advanced national asset on one dimension of electronic warfare in the country. And 15 years ago, he was a scientist that had no background. It was sensor fusion, no background in electronic warfare. And it took probably a good three to five years for that individual to be, I would call him an expert. And now over the last decade, a world expert. And so it's all about building the pipeline. You know, at BAE Systems, one of the things we spend a lot of time doing is trying to have enough volume to build that pipeline. But the other is giving people the keys to the car and putting them in the driver's seat early. Uh, A big challenge right now is, as you know, is a lot of the expertise in that baby boomer generation is retiring. And so we need to accelerate the development of those next generation of experts. And to me, the best way to do that is to put them in the driver's seat sooner. So you could take a model that 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 new apprentice is sitting in the passenger seat watching this expert drive the car and learning by osmosis it is a much faster learning curve if you give them the responsibility put that apprentice in the driver's seat and then have that expert in the passenger seat 
uh, there to grab the wheel if they start driving off the road and impart that knowledge, but keep that responsibility on that next generation. And so that's a big focus for us at BA Systems. And even with that, that still takes years to build. And it's all about keeping that pipeline strong. So having consistent budgets, both in the development, S&T, and operational space for EW and spectrum warfare is critical to maintaining that pipeline. It cuts to the, the true notion of the word investment. So how do you help folks understand the value of what you bring to the table? I mean, we talked about it earlier, but spectrum warfare technology, look, it's amazing, but it's hard to describe it quite often. You know, people understand jets on the ramp. They can see it. It's right there. They go to an show. But if you look at the boxes or the software, it's a lot harder to comprehend. And I guess this is especially for true when you know folks are discussing lowest cost versus best value and, and things like that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so this is a huge challenge for us. Anyone in the spectrum warfare space and electronic warfare space sees this challenge. It's easy, like you said, to point to a weapon and how far it can be shot from. It's harder to understand the value of electronic warfare. You know, everything might say EW inside, but not all EW is the same. One of the challenges we see and where we're putting energy right now is the fact that throughout the DOD, there's many cases where electronic warfare capability isn't modeled as extensively as it could be in the operational analysis and wargaming scenarios. So we as a country are taking a much more conservative posture on how far we might bring a platform into the fight because we haven't really modeled the EW effects that it enables in that fight to get it closer to the target. So we're trying to do things like model the mission effects and talk about the mission effects to an operator. They don't care that you, you know, suppressed a signal with a certain jam to signal noise ratio or got an extra 10 DB of receiver sensitivity. They care what it means to their mission. And so we try to talk in things like weapon engagement zone reduction. How does the EW on that platform allow you to reduce that weapon engagement zone so your pilot can get further in? But this is not easy and one area that I think as a nation we have to be thinking harder about because when we look at the near-peer threat environment, you know, there's a lot of investments in advanced capability. We've got F-35s coming off the line that'll be a huge asset, but we also have a lot of fourth-gen platforms. And, and if, if we need to, you know, turn it on tomorrow, we're going to fight with the systems we have and really understanding what the EW capability brings to those platforms is going to really enable us to drive the right risk posture uh, as we build those O plans. Now, I really like how you phrase it. And, you know, I, I always explain to friends and family at an air show when they see an F-35 or an F-22 demo flight, it's like, look, the, the flight dynamics here that you're witnessing, it's impressive, but it's the least impressive thing of those jets. It's, it's really the system's and, and what they can do. And I really like how you talk about the effects because that's at the end of the day, we're, we're here, the, the net. And so that's what the mission's about. So that's awesome. What are the challenges that keep you awake at night when it comes to the industrial side of the spectrum warfare equation? Are there things that we should be thinking about and that we haven't discussed yet? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll be honest over the past two years since, well, it, it was loud and clear last year in, in October when, Xi Jinping said his war council and publicly, you know, described the fact that China will be capable 
of taking Taiwan in 2027. And boy, oh boy, that has created a different thinking throughout the entire industrial base. It's not just about building platforms for a kind of potential future fight. It's looking at, geez, we have a real threat environment in the world. And how do we as industry make sure we are best prepared to answer the call when needed? And so that makes me the most nervous. I think across all of industry, it's really looking at where do we have strengths and how can we be investing now to have capacity if the demand comes up. So for us at BAE Systems, given our scale in electronic warfare, we've made hundreds of millions of dollars of investments over the past few years to ramp up our factory capacity so that if we need to turn the throttle up, we can. I think the other element of that in terms of the solution space is back to the software-defined systems um, that we talked about. Being able to, as a nation, more rapidly insert new technology into those existing systems um, that are already software defined. How do we do that faster to drive a broader uh, capability for our nation? Those are the things that keep me up at night. And, uh, and as an industrial provider, it's really how do I make sure I'm optimized for the things I'm good at? We're not a radar house. If the ball drops, go to someone else for, for radar acceleration. If you need EW, come to us because we've got the capacity and the scale. And I think as a nation, that's how we have to start thinking is how do we galvanize the industrial base to be ready? Hmm. Another component of that is obviously supply chain. And we hear about that a lot these days. And it's no secret that the U.S. faces a lot of shortfalls right now, building things like chips domestically and other key pieces of, of hardware. How does that really impact your field? I mean, we obviously need highly secure, trustworthy subcomponents to build this stuff. And I'm not saying this is a BAE-specific issue, but it impacts the defense industry across the board. What are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. This is a huge concern and a huge challenge for our nation. Um, all of the platforms we're building today and the advanced platforms that are coming and capabilities are centered around microelectronics as the key enabler. When you talk about spectrum warfare, microelectronics are the driver behind that. And right now, as you said, we rely on a lot of offshore capability. So we as a company, as other industry partners are, are very engaged in things like the CHIPS Act, building private-public partnerships, and also working with you know, foundry partners to build strategic relationships to try and minimize that risk. It's very expensive for the government to just go buy a whole stockpile of kit to make sure we have it on hand. So really, you know, making sure we as a nation have a priority on investing in onshoring those microelectronics capabilities is going to be huge to our uh, long-term success. Yeah, no, and that environment. No, I get it. And I'm glad that's, it's become an above the fold kind of national conversation because it's a priority for so many things and a deal maker, deal breaker. So, you know, especially in a JADC2 world, when we talk about increasingly combining collaborative effects, you know, drive through spectrum warfare, how do we evolve to the notion that it's not just one jet and its gear, but it, instead it's a multi-domain set of capabilities brought together at a given time and place for desired effects. I mean, that, Getting to that level involves not only the hardware, the software, but the TTPs and, and a lot of training and, and allied 
cooperation at all. How do you see it playing out from, from your side of the equation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is the level of complexity of the future integrated battle space is higher than ever. And today we have systems that are much more compartmentalized. And as we drive that rapid integration and the higher degree of platform connectivity and collaborative effects, we have to have the ability to manage that. And so, you know, I think of this, there's a few different layers. You know, you've got, given the most awareness you have of the battle space beforehand, you've got a whole host of tools and technologies to enable pre-mission planning. With the best information I have about the threat systems that are out there, where they're located, what kind of electronic warfare techniques I have to defeat them, I've got a pre-mission plan that I've optimized to the best of my ability. And so number one is making sure we have the tools to have, to be able to distill all of that data to build that pre-mission plan in, a, in the most effective way possible. The second is during, during mission and even between sorties, how do I take the information now that I'm learning between sorties and using that information to optimize? And so this is something, you know, that's getting a lot of interest in the spectrum world, uh, which we call rapid reprogramming. The ability to go out there, I've seen some threats in modes, maybe war reserve modes that I haven't observed before. I'm collecting that data on the jet, taking that data back and being able to rapidly turn around an advanced updated technique. We, we actually did a version of this in May, um, our EPOS system, we had six jets up there. We did about 70 sorties. Um, Northern Edge is a, a major operational training exercise in Alaska. And as we were flying our EPOS jets, or the, the uh, Eagle pilots were, um, we were able to demonstrate that the data we're collecting off the jet in a given sortie, we could take, the team could tune and optimize um, the parameters of the EW system, we call it a mission data file, and, and squirt it back to the jets so the next sortie, it's even more effective against some advanced threats. To me, that's step two, building those tools. I think that's one example. We had a bunch of engineers there that designed the system. How do I take that knowledge and impart it on blue suitors and create tools that allow the Air Force folks like Colonel Kozlov, 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing, to do that seamlessly in an in a operational scenario. And then the third piece is investing in technologies that allow you to make some of those decisions and adaptations real time on the platform based on the latest information and adapt to those unknown environments. So all, for us as an industry player, building tools that address all three of those things, I think are critical to enabling that fight and supporting the JADC2 and ABMS vision. That is wild. I mean, what you just described, that is incredible, very inspiring. But I get it, the, the level of complexity and the sophistication to do that is really difficult. And that really comes back to the notion of sustaining that edge. And, and given how you describe rapid capability insertion and evolution, what does that mean for the skill set on the flight line? Before we, we had maintainers that were focused on the physical elements, structural repair or, or, or maintaining systems like hydraulics or electronics. Now, could you see or are you seeing a world where there are software experts 
that could both be uniformed as, as well as contractor that are, are working this real time on that fight line, tweaking the jets as they, they go on sorties to, to optimize given what they're seeing. Is that realistic for the future and where you see Yeah. I mean, I think it's realistic. I also think it's, it's required. And I think, you know, when you talk to Colonel Kozlov, that's a big part of his mission is how do I get that right level of expertise on the flight line? And, and and I do agree, software expertise, data analytics skills, analysis skills, those are going to be critical to being able to rapidly understand what's coming off the jet and how to actually modify it. You know, there's a lot of automated tools. There's a lot of artificial intelligence capability out there that will certainly help and it will reduce the cognitive load. But I believe we're going to need a level of sophistication and expertise that's a level up from what we've needed in the past, just given the complexity of the threat environment. Wow. Very cool. So where do you see spectrum warfare going in five, 10 years? I mean, and how should we grade your company's homework and other players? And we asked this to Colonel Kozlov, but I'm just interested in your thoughts on, on where you see this going. Yeah, for me, it's really about the fact that, you know, in five, 10 years, there is no place in the spectrum you'll be able to hide it. You know, as technology continues to advance, the threat will go higher in frequency, higher into the electro-optic space, lower in frequency, and every band will be an environment where there's no sanctuary. And I think that's an important dimension. So making sure that as a spectrum warfare capability for our nation, we're investing across all of that so that we can have systems that are collaborative, adaptive, cognitive across all those bands to make sure we own that freedom of maneuver that you talked about everywhere in the spectrum. I mean, I, I think in terms of looking back in five to 10 years to see if, you know, we are, we are successful, you know, it's all about grading us against being able to defeat the most advanced agile complex threat. Frankly, my hope is that the capability as a nation we continue to invest in will deter anybody from even wanting to try. Yeah, that it's incredible. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your, your vision on this because, you know, look, man, I'm a history major, but you're breaking it down where even a guy like me can understand it. And that's very, very important because we've got to convince so many folks in town and, and beyond why this is the future. And it's absolutely make or break. So again, cannot thank you enough for your time today. We're at the end of our time block, but we'd really like to keep this conversation going. So, you know, we're going to give you another invitation back. Ho hope you'll accept. And again, thank you. Hey, thank you very much. I would be happy to come back. I really enjoyed the dialogue with you today. And I think this is an important discussion for us to have for our country. So really appreciate you setting this up. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.